It's Thursday, December 17th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris L. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Thursday. It is a happy Thursday, Chris, but you know why? You know what we're going to be in less than 24 hours? We're going to be in a movie theater in less than 24 hours. What are we going to be watching? Uh, there's an independent film mm-hmm. that you may have heard of called Star Wars The Force Awakens. I'm looking forward to that. Very much looking forward to that. Yes, we're we're gonna we're gonna dip into the full mailbag and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the box office prospects because we got a question about that from one of our listeners. We got a few other questions as well, but let's hit a couple of news items first. As we touched on at the beginning of yesterday's podcast, the Fed did in fact raise interest rates, and in fact the world did not explode. (laughs) I was gonna say we're still here. We're still here. (laughs) We're fine, everybody. I mean, can we can we now just move on? I think so. I think it was a non-event. Do you I mean, think, I think maybe if... this was their strategy? Because I mean, if this is an interest rate that had been predicted back in June, yeah. some people thought it could have come in the in the early part of the spring in March at that at that meeting. Yeah. But certainly in June, and I'm wondering if. Anyone on the board of governors said, you know, if we just string this out to December, we will just beat those people on Wall Street into submission and they'll just be resigned and they won't freak out. Yeah, well, I mean, it did, it was the headline, I think, for a number of months. It was, you know, when is the Fed going to raise rates? Are they going to do it now? No. Are they going to do it later? Is it going to happen this year? And, and I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, some people will argue they waited too long and, Others may argue that they shouldn't have have done so yet, and I mean you don't really ever know until you know you actually know. And hindsight's always twenty twenty. But the bottom line is that I mean we've had a we've had an economy here for the past seven years or so that has been stoked along by basically free money, and that's what low interest rates are. It's just free money, so you can go borrow for nothing and buy whatever you want. And, and the goal there was to encourage activity. But at some point, you've got to get back from the extreme. Uh, and this is one baby step back towards normalcy, so to speak. So, I mean, I think that when you look at it, it is a positive. It's a it's a an indicator that perhaps the economy is is healthy and recovering. Unemployment seems to be you know reasonable. I think people probably feel like wages could be a little bit higher. But you know, this is going to be something that uh, with with an election year coming up. I mean, there's going to be a lot of a lot of talk about the economy and sort of uh, people's different perspectives, and I think a lot of people will talk about kind of how we got here in the first place. It's kind of interesting to note that, you know, the the reason why we kind of got here in the first place was because of low rates, right? I mean, low rates brought everybody out of the woodwork to refinance their houses, buy houses. There were there were you know lax lending standards that let virtually anybody buy a house, even when they weren't really suited to buy a house, um, and and then consequently we saw all of that demand boost. Prices and we saw people taking out more loans on that equity that that was inflated and at some point that's unsustainable and we dealt with ramifications and the way we dealt with those low rates <laughs> so the problem was the solution you got to just get back to sort of that happy medium there and I think that's that's the first baby step was was this bump up on Tuesday's episode of Market Foolery Christine Hargis and Michael Douglas talked about the year in review for healthcare and their unanimous pick for worst CEO of 2015 Martin Trickelli. let me read to you directly from a story on Market Watch 
On Thursday, federal agents arrested pharmaceutical executive Martin Trichelli and accused him of securities and wire fraud based on his former work at a hedge fund. Agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation took the 32-year-old Trichelli into custody. And as Tony Kornheiser would say, I believe we had that. <laughs> uh, another headline from Wired, Internet rejoices as reviled pharma kingpin Martin Trichelli is arrested. And to be clear, these are these are not charges related to him jacking up the price of drugs yeah. fifty times. This has to do with hedge funds, but holy cow, is this? I mean, this is the least sympathetic person in the <laughs> business world, isn't he? <laughs> I, I mean, I would think. I mean, I, I don't know him from Adam, but uh, I mean, he definitely didn't help his general cause. I yeah. think with that price increase. And given his age, I mean, you could probably think that he is thinking he has it all figured out and probably a little bit cocky. And um, so, this maybe is a little bit of karma biting him in the ass, so to speak. Who knows? I don't know. But um, to me, when I you know I see something like this, to me, this lends it all. This this all lends itself to to the greater point that you know we as individuals here in the United States have virtually every resource at our disposal to manage our own money. Like you don't need as as an individual to go deal with a guy like this. I mean, this guy doesn't have any business if you don't go deal with him, right? And and there are more hedge funds out there than really we need, obviously. But but I think it's it's at the end of the day, it's your money, and nobody should care about it more than you. And and I know I feel that way. I think you probably feel that way about your money. And and so it's one of those things that you really. I think this is something that ought to. Make everybody think a little bit more about. Hey, I want to get out there and learn a little bit more about how to do this, how to do this on my own. It's not as difficult as people like to like to make it out to be. Uh, you'll see financial media throw all this all this verbiage out there that makes it seem complicated, and that's kind of their goal is to sort of obfuscate the truth, so to speak, and really make make you think that you can't do it. And and obviously, one of the reasons we exist is to make you understand that you absolutely can. And I think this is just another one of those good examples that you really uh, you don't need to be dealing with characters like this. Also, a good example of just be a good person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is not to say he's guilty, right? I mean, he's, he's right. innocent until proven guilty. Let's be very clear. Yes. I, I, by the same token, it, it seems like they've got some pretty pretty strong evidence to the contrary. We'll wait and see. I'm sure he'll have his day in court, but, yeah. but regardless, I mean, yeah. yeah. But I like that. Be a good person. <laughs> no, you're right. But, but no one's shocked. If, no. if it's Warren Buffett being hauled off by the FBI in handcuffs, yeah. people are like, wait, what? Yeah. Really? Yeah. People are stunned. Nobody is stunned that this guy. <laughs> With this attitude, with his level of hubris, and many other words that I will not use at this moment, nobody is surprised that this guy is in this position right now. Not at all. Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address from Greg McCord in San Diego, California. I've been contemplating adding to my position in Walt Disney with the anticipation that Star Wars will make, and this is in all caps, all of the money. However, I came across an article from Forbes that suggests the movie may have hindered its ability to shatter box office records for opening weekend by not being released in as many theaters as previous record breakers. I have no doubt the film will be a huge success, uh, but I'm wondering if the movie does not meet record-breaking expectations, will the stock take a hit next week and possibly result in a more favorable price to add to an existing position? A little bit more background on this. He included a link to the Forbes article. Uh, Scott Mendelson, who 
um, writes about the movie industry and does it well. Um, yeah. I'm not in the business of, of recommending people from <laughs> from from other um, financial websites, but if you're interested in the movie industry, Scott Mendelson's a, a good person to re, to to follow. Um, it's interesting though because the metric that that Mendelssohn uses is the commonly used one, which is theaters. How many theaters is this movie opening in? And when I dug into the numbers, it's on about thirty nine hundred theaters. That doesn't even put it in the top ten for movies that have opened in twenty fifteen. It it barely puts it in the top one hundred all time. But the only problem with the theater metric is that it doesn't give you how many viewings. So, I know that the theater that we're going to be in tomorrow morning, um, I don't know how many screens it's on, mm. but I know that there are 38 viewings compared 38 to, total. Com- to in a single day. And it's like a two hour and 20 minute movie right. or something. So, compared to Spectre, the new, the latest James Bond movie, yeah. it has five viewings. Right. So, but back to his question, it's not out of the realm of possibility that. With the expectations being as high as they are, and with short-sightedness <laughs> being what it is, that yeah, the expectation is on Monday the story is going to be, here's how much money Star Wars: The Force Awakens took in, and oh by the way, it's the biggest opening weekend ever. If it's not to his question, if it's not the biggest opening weekend ever, that people are going to raise an eyebrow about that. Just even if it's just for 24 hours. Sure. Yeah, based on the headline, people probably would. I mean, I think the the short answer to his question, which is a good one, I think, is is no. I don't think that the stock would take a hit based on uh, the fact that the movie perhaps didn't break any kind of certain record. And uh, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting just to think that maybe they're keeping the number of theaters down a little bit to to create kind of their own demand. I mean, you 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 sort of limit the supply somewhat, which can kind of help keep that demand maybe up for a longer period of time, right? So I'm sure Disney's looking at this well past uh just the weekend and and I don't know how crucial or important it is to management there that they actually own a box office record. I'm sure it's pretty cool to have, but records are meant to be broken. It wouldn't last forever. I mean, this is um, obviously a very good company. I think the market generally, with businesses like these, uh, the market generally has it right. So when you look at the stock price, I mean, the beautiful part about this, as was was noted in the question, is that the Disney makes its money a lot of different ways. I mean, it has the media networks division, has the the broadcast, the parks and resorts, studio entertainment, consumer products. I mean, those are five very powerful segments of the business. Now, the media networks cable side, uh, which has ESPN, is responsible for the the vast majority. Well, not the vast; it's the biggest. Uh, it's the biggest earner for the business. It's the bringing biggest in piece about, of the Disney revenue pot, right? And in, in terms of operating profit, it brings in about a half of the company's total operating profit. Now, when you look at the studio entertainment segment, which is where the movies come into play, that's only usually six, seven, eight, maybe nine, depending on the year, because sometimes those hits can be a little bit lumpy. Now, our suspicion is that operating profit here in that studio entertainment segment will will probably be a little bit more robust here in the coming year because of Star Wars. And probably, if you stretch it out even really over five years, because we know we have a lot of movies coming out, uh, that that segment ought to become a little bit more profitable, make up more of the business. But then you also have to think how that sort of carries over into the parks department, because we know they're putting a uh, Star Wars park on both coasts. 
and then you know also the consumer uh, products division. So, so in totality, I think you have a lot of different ways they can monetize, and that's their specialty: is taking one property and monetizing it a number of different ways. So it's not just the movie that matters. I saw one analyst note last week estimating that for calendar year 2016, the consumer products division of Disney, according to this one analyst, it's only one, 500 million dollars just related to Star Wars. I mean, it's but please, certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Tell me, tell me more about ESPN cord it's, cutting. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, well, and that's just it. I think, I think right now the biggest story for for Walt Disney has been the skepticism around or the pessimism around the cord cutting and and how important ESPN is to the business. And we and we know that obviously that media networks department makes up so much of their operating profit. To me, we've always looked at it sort of from a different perspective in that it's it's not really a matter of the property, a value of the property, the content. It's just the matter of distribution, and so I think I think that Disney, you know, I think we're going to see more over-the-top offerings from them here in the coming five years, uh, which which has an, an opportunity to to grow its market opportunity significantly because you have everybody and their mother with a mobile phone now. Uh, man, what's to say you don't have a little ESPN app or a Disney app on that thing that isn't tethered to a cable subscription? And I mean, I'll say right now, I mean, as a FiOS subscriber, we have that ESPN mobile experience, which is great. I love it. But man, I tell you, if I could get ESPN without having the cable subscription, that might be a pretty neat consideration too. I feel like before we move on, got to say one thing yeah. about George Lucas uh-huh. because George has taken some hits for the the most recent trilogy and the Phantom Menace and and, and <laughs> yeah. people sort of oh, I'm so excited about this movie because George Lucas is not involved. And uh, Allison Southwick sent me an article yesterday. Which is great, um, entitled "The World Before Star Wars," and it is a wonderful reminder of just how terrible science fiction films <laughs> were. What that landscape was like, what the yeah. offerings were like. If you were a movie fan in the 1970s, oh my God, was it bleak out there before George <laughs> Lucas came along and completely changed the game and and completely raised the bar with Star Wars. Yeah, we've come a long way. It was funny. I was reading back on actual reviews. From the first Star Wars back in '77, I guess it was, and I mean, I remember going to see it in the theater and think it was just the, the biggest thing ever. I mean, granted, I was like six years old, but um, it, it was it was really cool. I remember even at that age. But it was funny to look at some of the reviews, and some of the reviews were like, eh, "This wasn't even really all that big of a deal. It was okay. It was kind of boring. It was overhyped." You know, I mean, look at it today. It's 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 the movie. Just it's one of the most amazing things really of our lifetime that this property has not only lived on for so long but that it continues to grow and develop and become part of generations to come and that's Disney specialty we had it as kids now as parents we have it for our kids we'll have it for grandkids and it just keeps on going and from an investor's perspective that's just a really attractive uh, attractive dynamic to the business the one indelible memory i have from the first time i saw that in a theater in 1977 is about 15 minutes into the movie, turning to my brother and whispering, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I was just so... <laughs> it was it was unlike anything I had ever seen before. Yep. I was just, I don't get this. All right, let's keep going with the mailbag. From Jada, I recently started investing and The Motley Fool has become a main source of investing education for me. Do you think it's a mistake to spread $800 on six different stocks, or should I focus on fewer stocks? 
Great question. I think that that's a question we get from time to time, or sort of different versions of that question. Yeah. Particularly for people who are just starting out, we can't give advice just for Jada. Right. But, but uh, how should someone starting out with a limited amount of money, how should they think about dipping into fewer stocks versus more diversification and more stocks? Sure. I mean, I because think as I've made the point before. It's no fun owning one share of stock. No, it's not. And I mean, that's it. it uh, it's it's a dilemma, right? Because we we preach diversification, but you also have to take steps to kind of get to that point. Not everybody's starting out with like two, three, four, five thousand dollars that you can just plunk into the market and say, "I'm going to own you know ten stocks." I mean, ideally, diversification. We'd love to see you own 15, 20, 30 stocks, um, but it takes time to get there. And I mean, I think you know, it's it's a very good question in that. The first and foremost, I mean, the tenets of foolish investing, so that Jada knows, and I'm glad she's considering as a main source of education. We'll try not to steer you wrong here, but um, we like buying shares of great businesses and holding them for long periods of time, and and then we want to keep costs down. Costs being transaction costs, how much you pay to buy or sell the stock, and any taxes that you're paying. Now, you're not going to pay taxes until you actually sell. And you have capital gains to actually claim. So if you don't sell, then you really have no tax implications other than perhaps dividends, which really wouldn't be all that big of a deal anyway. Um, but I think that the general rule of thumb we like to follow is that you want your transactions fee when you when you purchase the stock. You you want that to make up that you don't want that to be any more than two percent of the total amount that you're investing. And so, for example. Um, I, I used Scott Trade, and it costs seven dollars for a transaction. So I want to make sure that every time I purchase a stock, I purchase three hundred and fifty dollars worth or more. Now, that's not to say that you can't purchase two hundred dollars or one hundred and fifty. Really, I mean, you can make up your own mind as far as that goes. But we're just telling you that the less you purchase, the more that transaction cost makes up of your total purchase, and and that will, you know. Affect your returns, you know, over time. So, uh, I, I would say with six stocks and eight hundred dollars put into those stocks, keep that. That's great. Now, moving forward, you probably want to try to look at maybe using something like a three hundred and fifty dollar number as as a as a ballpark, depending on how much you pay for your transaction costs. There are brokerage houses out there that give you free trades now or whatever. Now you, you sort of a trade off there if you get one of those online brokerages that doesn't charge you for transactions. Robinhood and yeah, those Robinhood, sorts of I mean those are worth looking into, I guess. Um I, I, I just you 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 kind of get what you pay for, right? Um and so just be aware of that. And and I think that in today's world, seven dollars for a transaction fee is still not all that bad considering I remember the day not terribly long ago when it was fifty, and you had to phone it into your broker. Um, but that's the general idea: is is from there, you know, don't feel like you have to get instant diversification by buying six, seven, eight different stocks. It's okay to go one at a time. Another way to look at that is that you can, as as an investor, initially your first step could be buying shares of the S and P index fund or or uh, you know uh, ETF. And that gives you instant diversity into all 500 companies that make up that S&P 500. Um, and so, you get that instant diversification with the very first purchase, and then you can start tacking on additional individual stocks Spiders. down the line. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I mean, it, it's, it's yeah. all just a matter of taking, taking sort of the understanding of how we invest here, understanding that we look at this through long periods of time. We, we like to be able to buy you know, shares in the companies that we can hold on to really 
ideally forever. I mean, you have to sell them at some point, right, to claim the money. But but we like to be able to buy it and then kind of just go on with life. From Steve Mead, my kids are three and one, and I'm fortunate enough to have the ability to contribute to a 529 plan for each of them. However, I also think that as they get older, I can use investing as a vehicle to teach them about money. And I'm thinking about opening a brokerage account uh, or Roth IRA for each of them so they can begin investing on their own. Uh, I've always been impressed with the stories Jason Moser has shared about how he engages his kids in investing. However, I'm curious about the execution of this. Do the girls get an allowance and a portion of the funds go into an account that can be uh, that can later be used to buy stocks? Does Jason front the money and the girls get to pick the stocks? When do they decide to make a purchase? How many shares do they purchase? Any insight you have to the tactical execution would be helpful. Sure. I mean, that's another you know, excellent question, and it's not. There's not one set answer there. I guess everybody can kind of have their own perspective there. But I mean, let me applaud. <laughs> let me applaud him for this because I think everything everything he said there is just really, really uh, so encouraging. I mean, opening a five twenty nine. That's great. We open five twenty nines for our girls when they were born, and we just contribute a small amount of money to those each month. Don't even look at them, and you know that's just a. Sort of a fund that they're getting, but but my goal was to be able to sort of teach them about investing in individual stocks, so they could have sort of an idea. It's what my dad did for me growing up, and and I think that's really I can attribute a lot of my success to the fact that he just took the time. And so typically, what we do is I you know I opened up brokerage accounts for for each girl. They each have their own, and it's a custodial account, so that when they turn eighteen, uh, it will become theirs. But the the basic idea in opening them was that they function just kind of like savings accounts. We just contribute money to them as they get money in. Tooth fairy money, birthday money, Christmas money, anything that they do. We don't give them an allowance. Uh, that's not to say we never will, but they're just at the point in their life where they don't really need one. But we do give them money for doing chores around the house. And and all of this kind of teaches them about the value of the dollar and whatnot. But but you know it's not to say that they're earning three hundred and fifty dollars every quarter to be able to you know buy their own stock. So I help. Yeah, we help, and uh, we we contribute to to their to their portfolios in order to be able to help them purchase somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred dollars. Uh, you know, every purchase, and ideally, we like to do it every quarter, but we can't always do it every quarter. So sometimes it's just a couple of times a year. But what we do in picking the stocks is, I'll basically take four ideas from the Foolish Universe, four names of companies that they see every day, and we start talking about them, and we kind of whittle them down, and then we finally come to an agreement on one. And uh, you know, the basic idea is, I just want them to be able to understand what that business does and why they're owning it. Uh, so they own Nike, Under Armour, Disney, Starbucks, Whole Foods, stuff like that. Um, you charge them two percent? <laughs> well, maybe I'm just getting two percent labor out of them sometimes. Maybe I take that off the maybe I take that off the chore money at some point. But uh, you know, another thing I think is really neat. What I'm going to do, what we're going to do this Christmas is we're going to give them each a share of Chipotle. Uh, because they have expressed a lot of interest in owning that business, but that's a pretty expensive stock, and they don't have a it's less a expensive fractional than it used share. To be. It is, <laughs> it is, and for all of you out there listening, I think it's very interesting. I think 2016 may just be the year to keep your eye on Chipotle. It may be uh, may be a good opportunity to build the position. Um, but again, that's another one. The market's not stupid. I mean, after they slashed guidance on this E. coli, I think the stock has held up pretty pretty well. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's we're going to take advantage of this and give them a share each uh, for Christmas. And so, to me, I mean shares make great gifts, uh, and so I just take any opportunity I can to kind of help 
you know, build that portfolio up for them. We just check it out every every quarter or so, and they get to see that they're not doing anything and they're getting richer in the process. And they're in fact getting richer. I mean, they've got a couple of stocks in that portfolio that have already doubled, and uh, you know, it's really neat. They tell their friends that they own shares of. Disney and I just they, they they get a little bit of a sense of pride it seems from that and and my hope is that when they turn eighteen they get these accounts they don't liquidate them they just continue to add to them um, and then at some point in their lives uh, it'll, it'll afford them the opportunity to do something special. Final email then we'll wrap up from Aaron Cole in San Francisco. Hey Chris, tell Jason that the pot he saw in Kazakhstan was most likely a different and non-psychosomatic version of cannabis. I recall in my youth running across pot plants growing down by the Sacramento River. They looked totally real. However, when dried, they did not create the quote-unquote desired effect, much to my chagrin. Also, while traveling with my family in China in the 1980s, Again, I was amazed to see pot plants growing in and around the downtown train station of a regional city. Later, while traveling by train, we passed entire farms growing the stuff. It was, of course, hemp. So, I'm 99% sure that what Jason saw was probably just hemp. I feel like I'm going to land us on the no-fly list or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's just embassies and international and draw. I mean, just yeah. No, I I actually think he's right. I mean, that's um, I I can't say that I, I. I can't say that I adjusted it, it to see what kind of effect that would get, but I, I think I do. I think I heard someone say they thought that might be the case while there. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I I do know it was it was what we thought it was, but but yeah, I, I can't say that I tested <laughs> it out actually to uh, to to see if it actually. Uh, did what it was supposed to do. And by the way, Aaron <laughs> included in his email uh, sort of his official signature, and he is the office manager at a place called Stuckey's Club Modern in San Francisco. And I went to the website. It is a San Francisco-based pro- post-prohibition-themed bar. Wow! And I think the next time we're in San Francisco, we're gonna oh, have man. to we're gonna have to stop by yeah, because that looks like that. a pretty a pretty interesting place to. Have a cocktail with an interesting guy to boot. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being here. I'll I'll see you. Uh, I guess tomorrow morning. Yes, I can't wait. Right outside the movie. That'll theater. be fun. I'm sure everybody's place of employment has rented out a theater so that isn't that standard operating procedure. I think most places are doing that for their employees, saying, "Yeah, yeah we're going to rent out a local theater and and get a hundred tickets or so." And I'll tell you, man. And Brian had me on that email when he sent that. They said they were working on it, and then he sent the email. He said, "Guys, I've got some disappointing news. You better move all your meetings because you're going to right. Star Wars." Yes. Shout out to uh, to our colleague Brian, uh, works in our office ops team for putting the whole thing together. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. Show is mixed by Dan Boyd, who will actually be going to an even earlier viewing of The Force Awakens Friday morning. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. For the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. In my mind,
Temptations. 